Are you familiar with the phrase uh, fog of war? You've heard that phrase, right? And for the most part, we would know what we're talking about when we talk about the fog of war. We use that phrase to describe how difficult it is to assess what's happening during a time of battle because it takes a while for information to catch up with the action as it's unfolding in the field. Fog fog is often used as a metaphor for a lack of clarity when we can't make things out properly. We get confused you know, somebody sets a, 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 a spreadsheet in front of me and I'm immediately confused. We say I'm foggy on what's happening here or the doctor prescribes us pills that makes my head foggy, meaning that we can't perceive things very clearly. We're lacking clarity at that moment. And clarity, man, that's just one of those things that probably everybody in this room would say they're striving for on some level in life. We want some clarity uh, to understand. You know, we're, we're familiar with fog of war. You may not be as familiar with another phrase called fog of information. Have you heard that phrase before? This is really interesting. Daniel Borstein said back in the early 1900s, technology is so much fun, but we can drown in our technology. The fog of information can drive out knowledge. I just uh, He probably had no idea how prophetic his statement was uh, when he made that back then. But we live in a day of unprecedented access to information. But we are also on the cusp of a new world where we have to really do the hard work to assess that information because it can be so easily manipulated or even falsified through AI technology and things like that. I mean... The fog of information is an even more profound picture for me. And when it comes to our journey with God, I would say that a large part of that life of living to to serve and follow him, a large part of that is a search for greater clarity, not total clarity. You know, understand we've never been promised total clarity, but clarity and focus about who we are, who God is, where it is that we're going, how it is that we're to relate to this broken place that we live in. And part of what Jesus has come to do in establishing God's kingdom on earth is to cut through the fog that surrounds the human race and show us the way home, show us our way back into Eden. That that, uh, is what the entire gospel is all about. Today we're coming back to our study in the gospel of John. If you have a way of following along, please go to John chapter 7 at this time. Last week, we read about the interactions between Jesus and the crowds and then Jesus and the religious leaders, and we considered how many of them were overthinking Jesus. And Janelle did a great job of expositing that passage, didn't she? It was just, she, she left us, yes, she left us with some very important questions to be pondering as we seek to understand how it is that we're relating to Jesus. So when we left off, it was with Jesus telling us pointedly, to stop using the law to make shallow judgments, but instead look below the surface and learn to judge rightly according to what God's really up to. And this week we're going to be tracking the same sort of theme. We're going to be reading about people's reaction to Jesus that reveals just how unclear their perceptions of God and his purpose and life and all of that, how unclear that had actually become. And we're going to See how we can find greater clarity in our pursuit of God 
as we look at these examples that we have in this passage. Uh, if you've got your bulletin, you'll have on the back of that uh, an outline of John. And if you, if you were to look at that, you'll see that we're in a section here where Jesus, where, where, where the author is, is holding Jesus in contrast with the Jewish festivals. He's been contrasted with Jewish traditions and, 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 uh, institutions. Now he's in contrast with the festivals. This gospel is revealing the, the messianic fulfillment and replacement of these things that Jesus has come to, to bring us. So we're here at this point at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Remember, if you can remember, Jesus had gone there. It was during the time of Sukkot, a week-long remembrance of Israel's time of wandering in the wilderness where they build themselves little huts and they go live outside of their homes. They live like nomads for seven days during this festival. And remember, Jesus came to the party late. First, he told everybody, I'm not coming. And then later, he snuck on in like a ninja messiah, but mostly so as not to create a stir. But midweek, as we were reading, we saw that he began speaking publicly again, he began uh, preaching openly about his mission and God's plan. And that's what's happening in the section as we pick this back up. Jesus has been preaching. It's causing people to talk. And that's where we'll start. So if you're there in John chapter 7, we'll pick up where we left off, starting with verse 25. It says, Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? But, but here he is, speaking in public, and they say nothing to him. Could it be our leaders possibly believe he's the Messiah? But, but how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When Messiah comes, he'll simply appear, and, and no one knows where he comes from. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from, but I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true, and you don't know him. But I know him because I come from him and he sent me to you. I don't know why I'm clipping in and out here. Do you guys have a clue on that? Or we'll just keep going and see what happens. Uh, so Jesus is teaching along uh, there in Jerusalem and people start to puzzle over him as he's, as he's sharing. Why, you know, they're asking the question, why isn't he being arrested? Is it possible that the leadership here believes in him? Do they know something that we don't know? Are they not arresting him because he's validated? Or, or is this their way of validating him as the Christ? But then they get tripped up in verse 27 because they're saying, how can he be the Messiah? We know where this guy's from. We know his hometown. We've looked at his house on Google Earth. We, and when Messiah comes, nobody's going to know where he comes from. And it's at that point we've got to pause for a minute and think, well, where did that come from? Like, what made them assume that when Messiah comes, they're not going to know where he comes from? And that's actually a little more puzzling, because there is no statement that says that in the Old Testament. But we do find that the rabbinical teachings of that day emphasize that point quite a bit. Rabbi Zira, who a hundred years or so before this, wrote three things come unawares. Messiah, a lost thing found, and a scorpion. So, in other words, you don't know when or where it comes from. It just catches you by surprise. In Malachi 3, it said when Messiah appears, he will come, he will suddenly appear in the temple. Suddenly, you know, as by surprise. And so the rabbis interpreted this to mean that his origins would be hidden. Nobody knows where he came from. He just mysteriously appears. And it's funny because they were right. But they're also wrong in this. They were right that Messiah's origins actually were clouded in this. 
but they were wrong about what they thought they knew about Jesus. He, he's called Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't have surnames back in that time, so you would be identified with your hometown. He's Jesus of Nazareth. So we know where Nazareth is, and, and, and that's not where Messiah is supposed to come from. But is Nazareth where Jesus was really born? I mean, come around at Christmas, we'll explain it to you. But th- this is a big deal. And, and, and something that we really can learn from. Their misperception based on their limited scope of knowledge is very telling for us. And I really believe that one of the first steps that we have to take in finding clarity is we have to acknowledge we don't know everything. Now, you may say, well, that's pretty obvious. Yeah, of course. But in reality, this is something we have to intentionally remind ourselves of. Last week, Janelle talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect, where it's a study that was done that revealed that incompetent people are incapable of realizing their incompetence because their brains hide it from them. Well, in that study, it highlighted that this is a real phenomena that all humans experience. And that is that our brains regularly trick us into thinking we're smarter than we really are. One article put it like this. Let me just read it to you. Our beleaguered brains, faced with the daunting task of making sense of the incredibly complicated world around us, employ a variety of tricks to enable us to selectively interpret reality, to draw conclusions and make decisions, and to do so without feeling hopelessly overwhelmed. That effect, called cognitive bias, frequently leads us astray and sometimes can conjole us into making catastrophically bad choices. Do you remember last week Janelle talked about the bank robbers who rubbed lemon juice on their faces because they thought lemon juice would hide them from the cameras, led them to catastrophically bad choices because they didn't even realize how incompetent they were. Many researchers, though, believe that the illusion of knowledge is a necessary part of being a human being, to keep us from being paralyzed by fear, the fear of so many things that are unknown. And honestly, you just got to take a moment and think about it, how much in this world that we're living in right now is unknown. Apparently, our brains are so good at this illusion, we really don't know how much we don't know. (laughs) I heard a comedian say this once, and I thought it was so great. If I traveled back in time, I would probably make zero difference for the advancement of technology or anything in in this world. Say I went back into the 1800s, and they're all excited to show me this brand new technology they got. It's called a telephone. And you, you can pick up one part of it, and you can speak into this mouthpiece, and it'll talk to somebody across town. You don't even have to see their faces. It's just amazing. And I would say, yeah, well, in the future... We carry our phones around in our pockets. It's got a screen on it. I can watch videos. I can play music. I can, I can even record things or take your picture with it. And they'd be like, that is amazing. How does that work? (laughs) Well, there's some ones and zeros and a satellite. Nobody's going to believe I'm from the future. Nobody would ever think through that. <laughs> they would probably think, yeah, this guy's just nuts. But this is the thing about it. I mean, look around your house. 
Look at all the various things that you take for granted, that you use on a daily basis, but have no idea how it works or how to fix it if it broke. Now, I also recognize there's a ton of engineers in this room right now. And so you're all looking at me like, yeah, well, I would know how to fix it, but whatever. There's still plenty of things that we take for granted that we don't know how it works or what to do with. And yet we feel like we have a pretty good handle on life most of the time. Okay, Rob, I get it. I'm not as smart as I think I am. What's your point? Okay, the point is we have to remember that especially as it touches our life with God. As we seek to understand God, to understand ourselves, to understand the world that we're living in. We as Christians, we've got a long history of overconfidence about what it is that we think we've figured out about God. The people making their mind up about Jesus were anchoring on one bit of information they thought they had concerning Jesus while he's from Nazareth. When in fact, they were self-fulfilling their own prophecy because they didn't know he was actually born in Bethlehem. Jesus said to them, and I, in my mind and in many translations, it's a question, and NLT makes it a statement. There's no punctuation in the original manuscript, so we've got to make up our own mind. To my mind, it would be a question. You know me. You know where I'm from. Jesus is challenging them about what they really know. And that's a good practice. That's actually a good practice for us. When we're looking for clarity, when we want to have a better understanding of what's happening maybe in our own lives and in our relationships in the world around us and how to navigate a, a rapidly changing society, it's a good practice. It's one that's going to require integrity and effort. When we've got a doctrine or a truth that we hold to as an absolute, like one that is going to influence how it is that, that we interact with the world, how it is that we live or the choices that we make, we need to examine it. We need to be willing to question it. And don't get me wrong here. I'm not trying to say that there's no such thing as, you know, the the truth is not real or, you know, epistemology is nonsense. We should have, we should be able to know and have a conviction. We must have convictions if we're following after the Lord. It's by that means that our lives are shaped into a life of obedience to God based even on our limited knowledge. But we need to be open along the way, remembering our finiteness, remembering our limitations. I mean, just the, the, the infinitesimal amount that we are able to perceive as human beings is staggering. We hear just a limited range of, of audio. We, we have a limited band of light that we're able to see when there's a lot more going on around us than we could ever possibly know. We're very finite with a limited, limited grasp on these things. So we need to be willing to explore and to question because truth can handle a question. And if it can't, then we got to think about it. I used to be afraid of questions. You know, back in the crazy church, that was... I mean, you know, questioning what I believed was somehow questioning God. Like, you know, you can't question God. And what I believe about God is it. But now I realize questions are the only real pathway to a greater knowledge about God. A greater knowledge about who I am and what this world is all about. 
how it is that we're navigating through it and where it is I'm going to only through questioning these things, examining these things. But like I said, it takes integrity and it takes effort. I'm going to say that's two things that our society is not great at right now, but it's required of us as those who are following our King. Okay, so first we gain clarity by admitting we don't know everything. We leave room to be taught and guided by God. Let's go on. Verse 30, we're going to read a big section here. Then the leaders tried to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? When the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, They and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus told them, I'll only be with you a little longer. Then I will return to the one who sent me. You'll search for me, but you'll not find me. And you cannot go where I'm going. So, I mean, you know, we know what he's talking about there, right? I mean, if you're familiar with this gospel story, you've read ahead, maybe you know what he's talking about here. He's talking about his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But you see, he's kind of layering the riddles in here. Verse 35, the Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement. Where is he planning to go? They asked. Is he thinking of leaving the country, going to the Jews and other lands? Or maybe he'll even teach the Greeks. Oh, terrible thought. What does he mean when he says, you'll search for me, but not find me? You can't go where I'm going. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Now, John's going to break the fourth wall here to try to get us up to speed and explain what's happening. In parentheses, when he said living water, he's speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared... Surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said he's the Messiah. Still others said he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scriptures clearly state the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted to have him, wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and Pharisees demanded, Why didn't you bring him in? We have never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. Okay, we'll stop there for a minute. We're going to go unpack some of that middle stuff, but this was a chiastic structure. It began with wanting Jesus arrested. We go through all this stuff. We come back to the end result of that. The guards come back. And there's no Jesus with them. Uh, And I love this part. The the religious, religious leaders... They, they send for Jesus at arrest, and they come back with nobody. Uh, they went to arrest Jesus. They end up getting arrested by what Jesus said. And the leaders were trying to get control of this situation, and they find they just can't do it. They can't control it. And to me, this highlights another way, then, in which if we're looking to gain some clarity in life, to begin to to process things with a a, a little more perception of what's going on, we need to acknowledge that we don't control everything. Too often we find ourselves lost and confused by life's events. 
I mean, even though we have charted out a very clear plan that God just needs to implement. No matter how clearly we spell it out to God in our time of prayer, here's what needs to be done, here's what you need to do, He just seems so slow on the uptake. The fact is, no matter how much we want to place Jesus under our control, it's not going to happen. It's just not. I'm sorry if that's a bummer. <laughs> Everybody's like, ah, I knew I didn't want to come to church today. But listen, this is the reality of it. We are not going to control God. We are not going to control Jesus, his Christ. We know that. We talk about it a lot. Yet we know in our own personal experiences how easy it is to fall back into this thing of charting out a nice plan for God and handing it over to him. But there's another aspect that I want us to remember as well. We don't control everything. We don't control God. And neither does anyone else. That's an important fact to keep in mind as it touches our reaction to the world and society around us. Because I'm going to tell you, in all my years in the church, we uh, as the church have a tendency, especially here in the United States, to sort of freak out when it looks like things are taking an anti-Christian turn in our society. When we feel like our rights to worship a certain way are being infringed on or challenged or we feel coerced into accepting something that maybe we, we can't wrap our minds around. We start wigging out and fighting back. And sometimes, let's just face it, we get really, really ugly in the process. And the reason for that is we are losing clarity. We are forgetting that none of these human institutions are in control of Jesus. A government or a society can legislate or intimidate all they want. They're not going to stop Jesus. <laughs> and that's not to make us a belligerent people. That's not so that we go, you're not going to stop Jesus, or anything like that. <laughs> it's to be the opposite of that. Right? The opposite of it. We, of all people, trust that Jesus overcame the world already. So we can risk loving others and living at peace with others who think differently than we do or, ha- or won't hold to what we believe. Because we know how the story ends. We already saw the empty tomb. Well, we've seen it in our mind's eye, but it was passed on to us. We believe in the empty tomb. The religious leaders sent imperial stormtroopers to go pick up Jesus. And Jesus says, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Rome later on, oh, they do arrest Jesus. They put Jesus on a cross, but they can't hold him in a tomb. And 300 years later, that same Roman Empire would bow the knee to Jesus. All through history, it's been tried over and over again to stop this movement, to stop this Jesus from advancing. In China, it's still against the law for Christians to gather freely. There is only a limited access to Bibles over there, and yet it's estimated that China has the largest percentage of Christians on the planet. You think someone's going to stop Jesus? (laughs) Good luck with that. It's not going to happen. We don't control everything, and nobody else does. God is in control. 
we can rely on that. We don't have to light up Molotov cocktails or build gallows or do whatever we think is necessary to try to wrest back that illusion of control that we've lived under for so long. We know the one who is in control. And we submit to him. And in submitting to him, we love our fellow human being. Well, it's quiet now. Okay. So the soldiers come back empty-handed. And the leaders respond, Have you been led astray too? The Pharisees mocked. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believes in him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they're ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. Then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he's been given a hearing? He asked. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures and see for yourself. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. And that's where we'll stop today. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a cliffhanger, but but uh, yeah, it is a good one, isn't it? Who said that? I didn't hear that. But it, I mean, I heard it, but I didn't see who said it. So the leaders clearly seem to think that they are better than the people that they're supposed to be serving, don't they? I mean, that comes across just surface reading of it. Elitism. That's a constant problem for God's people, including the church. Church leaders fall prey to it. Really, churches, whole churches and communities can be susceptible to this folly of elitism, of assuming a place of superiority. When we look down on people who aren't part of our clique, when we feel like we do church the right way as opposed to everybody else that's out there, uh, uh, then we've got an issue here. And what we're inferring from this section of the passage, if we're looking for clarity, then we need to acknowledge that we're not superior to others. The moment we start thinking that we're it, <laughs> that we're the ideal sort of church, uh, is the moment we're going to stop seeing clearly. Things are going to start getting fuzzy. We're not going to see things as they are. And it happens without us really paying any attention to it. I don't think anyone ever sets out to elevate themselves above other Christians. Well, today is a good day to assert my superiority over it. But, but when I hear someone, and it's innocent enough, and this isn't to call anybody out, but if I hear someone who's come from visiting another church saying, yeah, well, it was one of those churches where you have to dress up on Sunday, there's an implication behind that, Right? Like it's basically subtly asserting that our casual style is the right way to do these things and those who don't share that view are doing it improperly. And our hope, that's what we always have to come back to, our hope is not in style or image or personalities. Our hope is in the cross. And the old saying goes that the ground is level at the foot of that cross. There's no one who has or can claim a position of superiority over anyone else. So to maintain the clarity of our mission, we need to reject all thoughts of superiority among our brothers and sisters, as well as those outside of our faith. Our attitude is to be as beggars who have found food and are wanting to tell other beggars about the source of that food. As Jesus said, the greatest among us is going to be the servant of all. Humility will engender clarity. I'm going to actually repeat that. It sounds good when I said it out loud. Humility will engender clarity. 
And of course, you know, we don't want to get all superior here about our humility either. You know, well, when it comes to humility, our church is number one. Uh, but you get the idea. You get the idea. Okay, well, anyway, let's finish up. I want to go back. There's something important I want to get to here. And I want to reread verses 37 to 38, something that Jesus said in the middle of this passage. In the midst of all of this misunderstanding, these illusions of power and pride, Jesus stood up to offer clarity. It says, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. The timing here is, is significant. Each day of the Feast uh, of, of Tabernacles, th- there's a procession of priests each day on all seven days. A procession of priests would march to the Pool of Siloam and with a golden pitcher pull some of the water from that. It was living water. It came from the nearby springs. And then that same procession would march all the way through Jerusalem up to the Temple Mount. And then the high priest would ascend the, the, the large staircase to the top of the altar and he would pour out from that pitcher the, the, the water from that spring, the libation offering. And this was all done to the chanting of Isaiah twelve three. With joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. Now on the seventh day of this feast, they, they would do this same procession, but they would do it seven times in the, in the single day. And on the seventh time, that last time, as the high priest goes up there, the crowds are all moving in, and he raises up that picture, and a hush falls over the whole crowd. The expectation that they have is that God's going to provide rain for their crops in the coming years. But even more than that, provide the salvation that they've been looking for, the end of exile, the end of this, this uh, uh, separation from God. And the high priest poured that water out, And the crowd is hushed. And it's at this moment that Jesus steps up and announces that he is the water that Isaiah had promised. Remember how water's been a theme all along in John. The woman at the well, the changing the water to wine, the water from the pool of Bethesda, all of these various water theme things. We've seen it. And again, in this theme of replacement by messianic, uh, the messianic kingdom, uh, in the previous chapter, Jesus was identifying himself as the true Passover bread. Here he's saying he's the true water that gives real life. He's providing that messianic replacement of the first covenant. But it also identifies something. It's, it's the hope for a new future. It's the hope for the end of exile with God. But it also identifies a problem that drives so much of our misunderstanding or our grasp for power or our need to elevate ourselves. Something very important is revealed in his statement here about our human condition. We're thirsty. The reason the lies of this broken world system prevails is that we're thirsty. We're intrinsically desiring significance and meaning and purpose. So Jesus stands up in the midst of this and says, quench your thirst in me to find the clarity that christ is offering us we just need to acknowledge our dependence on christ are you thirsty for significance is implicit in this then jesus is saying find it in me my kingdom is yours 
Are you desiring meaning in life? Find it in me, Jesus says. I'll share the mysteries of life with you. Is it power you long for? Jesus says, find it in me. I'll give you the power to overcome the world. Do you want purpose? Oh, Jesus says, find it in me. I'll give you rivers of living water. Then you'll be a fountain that can dispense this source of life to others. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he's telling us, you'll make a difference in this world. What greater purpose could we hope for than to be influences for good in this broken world? Jesus appears. He does, he does appear suddenly in the, the brokenness and the static and the chaos of this fallen place. And he takes shape before us. And we see him and he says to us, follow me. I'll lead you home. That's what this gospel is all about. We just have to realize we can't do it on our own. We're not going to create paradise without God. We have to quit thinking we know enough or are in control enough to satisfy our own desires. It'll never happen. It's an ongoing journey. We, we carry broken buckets around with us that are never filled. I read how a person was visiting the United States from another country one time and he saw a water fountain. He was unfamiliar with the technology of that. Uh, but it was one that didn't have a handle on it or anything. You know, you've seen those. That's especially post-COVID. Those are, that's standard. And he kept looking at it, trying to figure out, how do I get water? And finally he was discouraged and was going to walk away. And somebody stopped him and said, pointed to a sign. And the sign actually just said, stoop to drink. And and so when he stooped over, an electric eye, of course, detected his presence and the water came flowing out. But man, what a, what a picture. Stoop to drink. Jesus will satisfy our thirst, those longings of our heart. We just have to be humble enough to receive it from him. Not our own machinations, not our own cleverness. Not some other thing that we just think we need or other person we think we have to have. Find it in Him to be humble enough to stoop and drink the true water of life. So let's do that. Let's commit to that. Let's make that determination in our hearts. I'm going to stoop. I'm going to be humble enough to recognize what I'm looking for in this life. It's going to be found in pursuit of this Messiah. I'm going to leave off all of these other things that I've been trying to achieve or trying to control or trying to assert myself over. I'm going to find clarity in the water of life. I'm going to find it in Jesus. Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, if you're able, please. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it is you reveal to us. Each time we gather like this, we present ourselves before your word. We ask you, Lord, to shape us by your spirit into what it is that this word reveals to us. But each time we gather like this, Lord, it's one more step towards clarity. One more piece of the puzzle begins to fall into place. Father, I pray for every person here as we've gone through what it is that you've said, as we've looked at these examples that were set before us, as we've tried the characters on to see what fits or what doesn't fit, I pray, Father, that you, by your Spirit, will begin molding us and shaping our hearts 
into right responding hearts to your purposes and your intent. Father, as, as a leader in the church, I take my place here as a representative of your people. And on our behalf, on behalf of all of us, Father, I confess our sin of trying to control matters ourselves, of thinking that we've known more than we really could, of assuming our own superiority over others, of trying to take matters into our own hands and forgetting where the source of life is. We confess that, Father. And we ask you now to forgive that and begin afresh, anew this morning. Fill us up with this water of life. Fill us with your spirit and guide us through life the way you'd have us to live. I pray that for each one of us here. In Jesus' precious name, amen, amen.
pray that's true for us, Father, that as we leave here today, that all that we do, all that we set out to do, we, we seek to honor you, to honor what your purposes are, your, your attitudes are in this world. Uh, guide us into that, I pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, we're going to speak this blessing on each other. Um, if you need prayer for anything, please feel free to come up. We'd love to pray with you and see what God will do. Is there a reason why this table is here? Was I supposed to say anything about this? No? Okay. There's a table up here. It's pretty cool. Uh, I just think it's going to be in the way, but it's all right. It's good. It's a nice table. Uh, so, uh, uh, prayer for people. Da, 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 da. Yeah, so let's speak this blessing. Uh, may the peace of the Lord Christ be with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Go in peace, you children of God.